Well, I would invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn uh, with me this morning to the book uh, of Galatians. The book of Galatians. Those of you who are uh, regular attenders uh, or members here at Ascension know uh, that uh, we intentionally, uh, at least it's our normal practice, we intentionally study books of the Bible here at Ascension chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so this summer, we worked our way through that great story, that gripping story uh, of Esther and the Lord raising her up for such a time as this uh, famous verse from that book. And then we took a short detour uh, to talk about some matters of the heart and to turn uh, in large measure to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. And now... I've decided that we, uh, we will turn to this brief letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, of course, God's Word is all profitable and is so in any season of our lives, but I think particularly for us at this time, in this place, this book is important for us to hear, for us to be reminded of. Some people have labeled, if you read uh, some background about this book, some people have labeled this book uh, Spiritual Dynamite. And the reason they call it Spiritual Dynamite is because it was this book, the book of Galatians, that ignited Martin Luther, the famous reformer in the 16th century. It was this book, in fact, it was Martin Luther's sermons and commentary on this book that 200 years later ignited the Anglican priest John Wesley once again. And so it's my prayer as we open up this book for the next several weeks, months, I don't know how long it's going to take, but that our hearts will in turn be ignited as well. Ignited around its three primary themes. The gospel of grace, the new people that got that gospel creates, and then the spiritual transformation that results from all of that. Today's section that we're going to look at is is brief. We're just going to dip our toes in the water uh, today. Uh, but I want to acclimate you even before I read the text that you see before you. Uh, even before I do that, I want to acclimate you to the to the to what you're hearing and to the surrounding. Galatians is a a letter. We call it an epistle. It's a letter, and it takes the form of a letter. It has a greeting. A salutation. It has a body and then it has a benediction. It's a letter I've already said. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul. This may indeed be his first apostolic letter. He wrote it in about 48 or 49 AD. And so not even two decades, not even 20 years has passed since Jesus ascended into heaven. And it's a book written to, obviously by the title, to the Galatians. There's been a lot of scholarly debate over whether the Galatians are a people group, whether it's a region. I think that that he's writing to a region, the central part of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. He's writing to these churches in the region of Galatia in the first century Roman Empire to a group of people 
that know him. He's familiar with them. They're familiar with him because that is where he went on his first missionary journey. He helped establish many of these churches in places like Iconium and Derby. Now when I say church, don't think building and steeple. This is the first century. The church is brand new, at least in its new covenant form. And so these would be house churches. These would be small bands of people in these cities, probably meeting in homes. And they haven't been Christians for very long. Right? Some of them have been Jews ever since they were born. They've been following the traditions of their people. Or they've been absolute pagans with no regard for God in the world at all. These people, these highly religious Jews and these pagans are now coming together and are suddenly followers of the way. The way of Jesus. And so that's the setting that Paul is writing into. These people are still being grounded in and learning and having to relearn what being followers of Jesus is all about. And that's exactly why Paul is writing to them here in the book of Galatians. So let's jump in with that lengthy introduction. Uh, I'm just going to read, as I said, the first five verses, which is the greeting of the letter. And I invite you to stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. What I've just read to you in these opening verses of the book of Galatians is essentially the trailer for the rest of the book. The trailer for the rest of the book. You know movie trailers. We, we love movie trailers. They give us a, a hint of what is to come without revealing too much. The, the plot is briefly introduced. And even the tone of the movie is, is conveyed subtly by the, the soundtrack that we hear in the background. This brief salutation by the Apostle Paul, sets us up for all that he is going to be about. And it's summed up in one word. Gospel. The Gospel. Now you say, well, we know the Gospel. Gospel equals good news. The news that Jesus came to this earth to save sinners By grace. Yes. It's the Gospel. It's what we're about. But what makes the Gospel good? And how might it lose some of its goodness? 
Or how might we subtly twist it? Paul is going to spend much of his letter further defining what the Gospel is and unpacking all of that. But today, we're just going to to lay some foundational truths. Three truths about the Gospel that I want us to meditate on this morning. The first one is this. The Gospel is from God. The Gospel is from God. There's a phrase that we hear a lot in the news these days. It's the phrase, it's the verb fact-checking, right? There's even a website devoted to that part of our vocabulary, factcheck.org. Let me give you another phrase that's become commonplace in our vernacular, fake news. Fact-checking and fake news. Why? Why do we have these phrases in our time and place? We have these phrases because it's hard to know who to believe these days. It's hard to know who exactly is telling the truth. And in our information age, you can find just about anyone with with so-called authority to support whatever position you want to hold. Just this week, the social media giants of our country have been criticized for for becoming arbiters of what they deem true and censoring what they deem not true. Who should we believe? Who should we believe? Paul is writing this letter into churches confused about authority. They're confused about who and what to believe. And so Paul wants to begin by establishing from the very start that the Gospel is from God. That His message, what He is about to say, is from God. And in order to do that, he has to establish his own authority. That's why he begins, Paul, an apostle. This is different than how Paul identifies himself in in other letters that he writes. For instance, he calls himself a prisoner when he writes to Philemon. He calls himself a, a slave when he writes to the Philippians and to the Romans and to Titus. But here, he's an apostle. And that's very intentional. You see, many of these folks, they knew Paul personally, but they had been fed an entirely new narrative. And we kind of get the hint. It's subtle. But if you compare this greeting, this salutation with other letters of the Apostle Paul, we get the hint that that something is off here from the very start. You can hear it in the lack of, of pleasantries from Paul to the churches of Galatia. He doesn't endear them with any description like, like saints or, or faithful brothers, which he does in other letters. He's all business. You see, that's the, that's the soundtrack of this trailer. This, this is a serious letter because the matter at hand is serious. 
False teachers had come into these communities, had come into the church of Jesus Christ, the young church of Jesus Christ, and they began to to speak things, to teach things that were contrary to that which Paul had established. And as they did so, they questioned the authority of Paul on these matters. And so they've, they've forced Paul's hand, essentially. Paul's not boasting here, but he needs to reassert his credentials and the legitimacy of his authority. And so he states, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And when Paul says he's an apostle, he is saying, he is claiming capital A apostleship as opposed to lowercase a apostleship. You see, the word apostle simply means one sent, sent one. And so there were lots of followers of Jesus sent out with the message of the good news. But it was well known that there were a band of brothers, there were capital A apostles who had been directly contacted by Jesus, who had been directly commissioned by Jesus. And so when these false teachers are coming into these churches in the region of Galatia, they're coming with endorsements of their own from whatever earthly authority, and they're seeking to trump and question the legitimacy of Paul. He's not a real apostle. I mean, remember what he was doing when Jesus was dying? He wanted nothing to do with Jesus then. He was Saul then. He can't be trusted. And Paul essentially says here at the very outset, I'm a capital A apostle. Yes, I wasn't one original I wasn't one of the original 12, but I was literally knocked off my horse by the risen Jesus. Remember that story? Those of you who know the New Testament, Acts chapter 9, then Saul persecuting the people of God, persecuting the followers of the way. He's on his way to Damascus and he falls to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus then goes on to tell him that Paul will be a chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles. And so Paul asserts here that not only can he be believed, but he must be believed. His authority is not mediated between any human agency He doesn't have some online degree. He's commissioned by the risen Christ from God Himself. And it's the resurrection that is the crux of the Gospel's authority. You see, in this next phrase in the greeting, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead. Paul reminds his readers of the resurrection and of the fact that that validates Jesus' words. You see, before the risen Christ proved Paul to be trustworthy, the resurrection itself proved Jesus to be trustworthy. 
couple weeks ago, we looked at those, those sweet, those tender, those wonderful words of Jesus, that gospel invitation, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But what makes those not just words? The resurrection. The resurrection. No resurrection would mean no hope. But a bodily resurrection in time and space with hundreds of witnesses recorded in the annals of history means the Gospel is not just from Paul, but it's from God. It's not a human invention. It's not wishful thinking. It's truth verified by Jesus rising from the dead. And that's the first thing that Paul is after. Is that he ought to be believed in Galatia. Not just because he knows what he's talking about, but because the risen Jesus has commissioned him. And it's no difference for us today. The gospel stands or falls on the resurrection. If you're seeking, Christ, if you're wrestling with the claims of Christ, you've got to do something with the resurrection. But Paul's testimony and the hundreds of testimonies like him, those followers, those disciples who changed the course of history because they had seen their Savior alive, they proclaim, believe it. The Gospel is from God because Jesus raised was raised from the dead. That's the first foundational truth that I want to look at this morning. The second is this. The Gospel is about substitution. The Gospel is about substitution. We have, we have through way too many throwaway words and phrases in our culture. If I'm coming up to you and I ask you, how are you doing? You're likely going to respond, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Now, whether you're really well, whether you're really good, and whether you really care about how I am is another thing altogether. In contrast, when Paul says grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace. Those words are packed with rich meaning. And it begins, it just begins to unpack the richness and the depth of the Gospel message that he plans on defending in this entire letter. We'll get back to those words, but we first must recognize that they flow from the historical reality that Jesus gave Himself for our sins. Verse 4. Jesus gave Himself for our sins. Everyone recognizes that this world is not as it should be. Everyone recognizes that the world is broken. They recognize the brokenness of, of their own hearts. Or at least, they recognize the brokenness of other people's hearts. Things aren't as they should be. There must be a way that leads to life. There must be a better way. And so religions, religions of all kinds, they come in and they say that the way of life, the way of peace, 
is to tip the scales, so to speak, through our good works. Sure, we screw up, but if we counterbalance, counterbalance those, those screw ups with, with good things, we'll be good. Or maybe if we counterbalance those screw ups with penance of some sort, we'll be good. And Paul begins here in the very beginning of this letter to declare that that's not God's plan at all. That God's will, right? It says according to the will of our God and Father. God's will was that Jesus would make Himself the substitute. Falling in line with generations, fulfilling generations of sacrifices made to deal with sin, Jesus would come and would willingly, once and for all, pay the penalty for our sin, for our brokenness. Nothing needs to be added to it. There is no need to do anything else. It's done. Period. Grace. Free from any good works. Free from any penance. Martin Luther wrote about this phrase. Martin Luther, who was ignited by this book, he wrote about this phrase, he gave himself for our sins by saying this, these words are very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of self-righteousness. Again, we'll talk more. Boy, will Paul talk more. He'll get very pointed in the weeks to come about how this was taking form, particular form in the churches of, of Galatia as these false teachers had infiltrated the church and had begun to tell anyone who wasn't a Jew how they needed to gain acceptance into Christ. And it wasn't grace. It wasn't the Gospel. And I hope, as we look at kind of the original context of Paul and, and how he was addressing these false teachers in Galatia, I hope to show that this very same thing can take particular forms in our day and age as well. We are not immune to wandering from grace. But we dare not. Because it's in that grace where peace is found. Peace with God. Peace with others. Peace within ourselves. You've heard the phrase, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's catchy. But it's not trite. It's true. Jesus plus nothing equals Everything. The Gospel is about Jesus coming as our substitute. And so grace and peace to you who look to Him alone. Not to anything in yourselves. That's the second foundational truth. And that brings us to the final final truth I want to unpack for just a moment this morning. It's this. The Gospel is rescue. The Gospel is rescue. 
The gospel is from God. The gospel is about substitution. And the gospel is rescue. If you are drowning, what do you need? You don't need, nor do you want, me to throw you a manual about how to swim. You need me. You want me to throw to throw you myself, to grab your floundering arms and pull you out of danger. And that is what Jesus has done. Our our English translations translate the Greek verb here with, with deliver, but we could also use the word rescue. And this verb used by Paul is a strong one. In the book of Acts, it's used to describe the rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt, the rescue of Peter from the hands of Herod, the rescue of Paul from the mobs. And so when Paul says grace and peace to you, he tells you that you've been rescued from the wages of sin, which is death. But that's not what Paul communicates specifically to the church here, is it? He says we've been delivered, we've been rescued from the present evil age. Now as I said earlier, I don't need to press the case that we live in a world that could be described as evil, as broken. We live in a world of decay, of corruption, of sin and slavery to it all. And the Jews... God's people had long awaited this age to come when, when wrongs would be made right, when restoration would occur, when their king would come to rule and reign forever. And Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, and the Holy Spirit is telling us and reminding us this morning that that day has come. It has begun. When Jesus came to earth, He came simply not to accomplish salvation for His people, but He came inaugurating the kingdom of God, the age that is to come. And so for the people of Galatia and for us still today, we live in this time when the present evil age and the age to come overlap. See, the Lord has not pulled us from the world entirely, but He has made us new. And He's continually making us new. And so the old is passing away and the new has begun for those who are in Christ. We are no longer in bondage to the ways of the world. We are no longer slaves, but are led now by the Spirit. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're no longer without hope, but we have an inheritance awaiting And because of all that, we are able, the people of God are able, the church is called to bring some of the sweetness of the age to come to this present evil age. To the suffering of that which still is. And so the Gospel is about rescue. You have been rescued from your sins by your substitute but you've been also rescued from going through the motions, from living as all the rest of the world lives. You're citizens of a new kingdom. 
The old has gone. Put on the new. And, and that's why we pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Gospel is rescue. So brothers and sisters, what is, what is our takeaway today? What do you need to do as you walk from this place? Nothing. Nothing. It's been done for you. Just receive the rescue of God. Rejoice in the substitute of Jesus and rest in the grace and the peace that is yours. If that's where your heart is, if that's where your life is, bound up in the Gospel, then everything else will follow. I pray that this is a good study as we have now these foundational truths of the Gospel laid, Paul will now come at us with some pretty sharp words. I pray that He uses them in all of our lives for the glory of His name. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your servant Paul. We thank You for Your Word preserved for generations upon generations for us, Your people. And most of all, we thank You for the Gospel of grace. This Gospel that is from You, Father, for You have revealed it. You have guaranteed it through the resurrection of Your Son. The One who came to be our substitute. The One who has rescued us from all the things that we have been enslaved to. Oh, Father, may we live this day, this week, and all our days in the grace and the peace accomplished for us. Father, thank You for this reminder this morning from Your Word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.